Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Micah, chapter 4. As we continue in our study of this minor prophet, it's always a bit of a misnomer to call them minor prophets because they are delivering the same message as what we might call the major prophets, minor prophets with major messages of judgment and of hope. And this evening, we look at Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And we see this glorious picture of hope, hope for not only the people to whom Micah was speaking in his day, but even for us in our day. Hear God's word, Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, if you were back in Mississippi in 2005, uh, many of you did live here then uh, when Hurricane Katrina came through. Some of you were even there on the coast. Uh, you know exactly what is happening down in South Florida, uh, what is being experienced by those who have uh, gone through the, the devastation that Dean reminded us of even this evening. Uh, you perhaps went down with a mission trip if you lived up here and you saw the, the, the devastation, the rubble, the, the, the bare slabs uh, that had been scraped of all signs of life. Uh, you saw the debris everywhere. We were in Columbia, Mississippi at that time at my first uh, pastorate. And uh, though it was not as devastating as it was on the coast itself, it certainly uh, were debris piles in front of every house. It was a, a wreck. And even folks from this congregation came down with Jason Edwards. Uh, some of you may have been on that trip to come down and to serve our congregation in uh, Columbia. But if you went down, if you, or if you lived down there, you know uh, that at times like this, there is a, a horrible sense of, of stunned confusion, uh, of grief, of even hopelessness. Uh, even when volunteers uh, come down, right, the, the, there's a sense in which, yes, the presence of these volunteers to help and to uh, rebuild uh, does uh, encourage one to have a sense of resiliency and resolve and, and hope. Um, but I wonder if you've ever thought, if you've ever seen pictures of, uh, you know, here's the way it was, you know, on August 30th, uh, 2005, and here's the way it is today, right, 10, 15, 20 years later. Uh, what if back on that first Tuesday morning after Katrina rolled through on Monday, what if someone could have given drone footage? I don't think drones even probably existed back in 2005, but, but what if there had been drone footage, right, that you could show to these families on the coast who had lost everything and you could say, but this is what the coast is going to look like in 2022, all right? 
I, I know that you look and you see nothing, right? You see slabs, you see debris, you see this devastation. But look at what it's going to look like in 15, 20 years. Don't you think that that, that site would have been such an encouragement, right? Such a, uh, an inspiration, a, a spur to say, okay, let's get working at, at what is going to happen. If that's what's going to be, if that's the reality that we're looking forward to, right? then let's start working toward that future. Well, this evening in our text, Micah is giving Judah and us a prophetic drone footage, so to speak. But it's a picture much, much farther down the road than a mere 15 years, right? At the end of chapter 3, you remember from last week, if you were here, that, that God has declared judgment upon Jerusalem because of its leader's immorality. And you see in verse 12, this prediction of devastation. He says, therefore, because of you, because of you leaders, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house, that is the temple, a wooded height. Now remember that Micah was prophesying during the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. That is from about the 730s to the 690s BC. So if you know your, your Old Testament biblical history, you know that, that Micah is predicting Jerusalem's destruction more than a century before Babylon would actually come and destroy the city. And so he's, he's predicting the destruction, but now in chapter 4, he's looking even farther into the fog of history. Right? He's looking to the latter days, over the horizon, beyond what the eye could see. And he's giving God's people, who are in the midst of this darkness, he's giving them a vision of light. A vision so glorious, so grand, so marvelous, that it has sustained the hope of God's people from the day that Micah spoke of it, even down to our own day. And why do I say to our own day? Because this prophecy has already begun to be fulfilled, but it has not yet been completely fulfilled. And so we today, even in 2022, are called by this message, by this vision, by this drone footage, right? To, to look forward in hope, to walk in the light of this message and commitment, and faith, and obedience to God as we anticipate what is yet to come. I want us to, to consider this passage under three headings with three questions that we seek to answer. First, what does Micah predict? Secondly, what is the fulfillment of Micah's prediction? And third, how should we then live? So first, what does Micah predict? Well, in this prophecy, Micah tells of a time remote from his own day, right, in the latter days, in which Mount Zion and the city of Jerusalem and God's temple on top of it, that reference in verse 2 to the house of the God of Jacob is a reference to the, the temple of God on top of Mount Zion there in Jerusalem. And he says that, that the city and the temple, it will be rebuilt. It will be supremely exalted and securely established as the highest of all the mountains. It's going to be established. It's going to be secure. You remember, perhaps, if you've ever read through First and Second Kings, and you keep coming across this little note, uh, a refrain of sorts, as, as each king is, is evaluated, and, and it has some reference to do with uh, how that king dealt with the high places. 
The high places. What's going on with those high places? Well, the high places were those, those hills, those mountain heights in which the peoples of Israel were engaged in pagan worship, who were worshiping just like all the other nations, even though God had set his temple on Mount Zion. And they would, they would go and they would worship God, as Josh already alluded to, in their own way, according to their own imaginations. Right? Who cares that God has commanded us to worship in the temple? Look at all the pagans. They're worshiping this way with Baal and, and Asherah. We're going to worship like them. The high places were the, the places where, where, where these foreign gods were being worshipped. And unfortunately, God's people were engaged with it. And, and again, the kings were being evaluated. How did they deal with that, that false worship that was going on? Well, here, Micah is telling us that there's going to come a day when God's mountain will be higher than any high place. Right? God's worship will take center stage. It will be supreme over all. And notice there is this supernatural attraction to the worship of God. And it's not just going to be the Jews, the people of God of old, Abraham's physical descendants who will be making these pilgrimages from all the the areas of Israel up to Jerusalem. But rather, Micah says that there will come a day in which the peoples will travel to Jerusalem. Many nations will stream up, will flow up to it. Think of it, uh, you've never seen a river flowing uphill, right? And yet this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a a stream of people coming up to Mount Zion. And they're not going to come as tourists. But as you see from the text, they're coming as disciples. Come, verse 2, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. They're coming to worship and they're coming to learn God's ways from him, that they might walk in his past. And you notice that there is both this sort of centripetal motion, a motion inward, as well as a centrifugal, how do you say that word, right? A motion out, right? That, that is, you have the, the word of God going out. You notice there in, at the end of, of verse two, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. The word of God goes out and the nations come in. They stream in. And then those nations themselves go out and say, come, come, let us go and worship the one true God at Mount Zion. They call the nations, their fellow nations, their fellow brothers and sisters to come to God's house with them to worship and to learn. And so this cycle goes on and on. Centripetal motion, people coming in, people going out, people coming in, people going out. And as the nations learn God's ways, Micah tells us there in verse 3, that God's word will create peace amongst the nations. The curse of Babel and all the division that we see as a result of the fall is going to be undone. No longer will nations need to fight to settle their disputes, but God will work peace between enemies, Micah says. All the instruments of war and death will be turned into instruments of peace and life. As Ralph Davis alliteratively paraphrases, they'll turn their tanks into tractors, their bombs into bailers, and their missiles into milking sheds, all right? And this universal peace will be individually experienced as we see there in verse four, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. Without any threat of danger or fear, there will no longer be the need to run into a fortified city because an army is coming. But the vision is that The people will be able to enjoy the fruit of their labor with gladness of heart and peace and enjoy. So this is Micah's vision. It's striking in its length, right? In the latter times, 
And it's a lasting peace. It's also striking in its breath. It fills the whole earth universally. All the nations streaming to Mount Zion. And it's striking in its depth. It reaches into the heart of man to give him a desire to worship, a desire to learn, a desire to live at peace with others. So this is the prediction. But how is this prediction fulfilled? How is Micah's prediction fulfilled? Well, perhaps not the way that you might immediately think. Certainly not the way that a Jew reading this passage in Micah's day would have thought. That little phrase, the latter days, or in the last days, as maybe your Bible translates it, it actually comes up several times in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We see it in Genesis 49, we see it in Numbers chapter 24, and we also see it in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30. It's a phrase that can refer to, to any sort of future time, but that reference in Deuteronomy 4, verse 30 is significant because in that chapter, Moses was, fulfilling a time, was predicting a time when Israel would commit idolatry and would be cast out of the promised land and would be scattered among the nations, he's foretelling exactly the situation that Micah here is foretelling. Right? Before Assyria and, and Babylon were to, to take the, the, nations in, the nation of Israel into exile, Micah is predicting that word, and, and Moses had predicted it so many hundreds of years previously. But Moses, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 30, goes on to say that when you are in a tribulation, he says to the Israelites, and all these things come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to Yahweh your God and you will obey his voice. All right, so here's Moses back in Deuteronomy, way before Micah was prophesying, already saying, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go into the promised land. You're going to disobey the Lord you're going to be sent out of the promised land. But in the latter days, you are going to be restored. You're going to be returned from exile. And so there's a, a tiny sense in which we can say that th these latter days of which uh, Micah speaks, of which Moses spoke, began to be fulfilled when God restored his people to Jerusalem. When they began to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple on top of Mount Zion. You read this story in Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah. But clearly, as you read you know, through those books and you read some of, of, of the post-exilic period of Old Testament history, clearly the glory of Micah's vision was never realized in those centuries immediately after the return from exile. But here's the thing you need to see. With the incarnation and the life, and the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us, that the last days, the latter days, they have arrived. And the Lord Jesus' apostles have revealed to us that the manner of fulfillment of Micah's prophecy was not to be literal and geographic, and it wouldn't happen all at once, but it would happen over stages. And we see this in its, one of its first indications in the book of Acts. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, it might help you to, to see it with your own eyes. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, uh, we uh, read uh, that, that, that Peter begins to preach to the Jews who are assembled. Remember, these Jews are from every nation under heaven, right? And the Spirit has enabled the saints to speak of the mighty deeds of God 
in the tongues of those nations. You see that in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And Peter begins to to explain what's going on here by quoting from the book of Joel, chapter 2, in which Joel had foretold the pouring out of the Spirit of God. But the words that Peter begins to use in verse 17 actually are not found in the book of Joel. They're found in Micah 4, verse 1. And in the last days it shall be. And it shall be in the last days. See, what Peter is doing here is is saying to the church, to the Jewish community there, he's saying to his brothers and sisters who are hearing him, he's saying to us that Micah's prophecy of the last days, of the coming exaltation of Mount Zion, the ingathering of the nations, the coming universal peace, it has begun. It began when the Holy Spirit was poured out from the Lord Jesus Christ, who was at the right hand of the Father. You see, the New Testament goes on to reveal to us that Micah's prophecy is even now being fulfilled in a spiritual manner, in a heavenly manner. With the exaltation of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God, the true Mount Zion, the true and spiritual and heavenly Jerusalem are where Jesus is. He is the King. He is the Messiah. He is the Davidic King. He is the prophet. He is the priest. And he is the one who is reigning with all authority in heaven and on earth, at the right hand of the Father. He is the God-man who is ruling over all creation. And now God's kingdom and God's temple, having been exalted on high in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the dwelling place of God, who is the, the temple, the place of a sacrifice and atonement and reconciliation with God. And what is Jesus doing in heaven but building his church? And what does Paul say the church is? The temple of God, the dwelling place of the Spirit. And so what the New Testament reveals to us is that to come to Christ in faith, to unite yourself to his body, the church, his people, is to come to the temple. It is to come to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's why when we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, that, that when we gather for corporate worship, the author of the Hebrews writes this, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? He said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither here on this mountain, that is the mountain of Samaria, the Samaritan, where the Samaritans worshiped, nor in Jerusalem, Will you worship the Father? An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. No longer is worship restricted to one geographical location, the literal physical city of Jerusalem on a literal physical Mount Zion. No, even now, the New Testament tells us, the nations are coming to Christ, are coming to the heavenly Mount Zion, wherever they might be around the world. As they unite themselves, to his body, the church. You see, Jesus's word is going forth from the church, through the church, to the nations. He has sent us into the world to make disciples of all the nations. And now the nations are streaming in to learn God's ways, to walk in God's paths. Jesus, having been lifted up, as he says in John 12, 32, 
He is drawing all mankind to himself. He is drawing men and women, boys and girls, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He is reconciling them to God. And he is creating peace between enemies. How does Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2? The Gentiles who had no hope, who were far off, who were without God in the world, they've been brought near in Jesus Christ. Brought near, and, and, and Paul says that, that, that Jesus Christ is our peace. He's made Jew and Gentile one in him, fellow citizens in the household of God. Even now, those who are converted to Christ are walking in peace with their fellow men. They're enjoying the peace of the gospel. So, so do you see what I'm trying to tell you? What you're doing right now, worshiping God, hearing the word of God, is a fulfillment of Micah chapter 4. The prophecy of Micah has been and is being fulfilled. But if we go back to Micah, and we go back to, to see all the, the specifics of what he was saying there in chapter 4 about the peace of the nations, it is clear that all that Micah says to us here in this text has not yet completely been fulfilled, has it? There is a fullness of fulfillment that still awaits a future day. The nations are still at war with one another. There is still dissensions and disputes and terror and fear. Even as we see in Micah 4 verse 5, all the peoples are still walking, each in the name of its God. But one day, Jesus will return, and the holy city, New Jerusalem, will come down from heaven to earth, and God will dwell among his people on a new earth, and Christ will reign here on this earth over all the nations forever and ever. And on that day, and on that earth, forever and ever, there will be the fullness of peace that Micah foresees between all nations. Then and there, all warfare will be ended forever. Christ will reign forever, and we will reign with him, and we will enjoy the peace that Micah sets forth so beautifully. This picture of fullness of joy as we sit under our vine and our fig tree, right? An Old Testament symbol of prosperity, of peace, of blessing, of contentment, of length of days. It, it takes time for a vine to grow and bear fruit. It takes time for a fig tree to grow and, and bear figs. And again, this picture of being able to sit under it without being made afraid by anyone. The fullness of that day still awaits. The, the prophecy of Micah has been fulfilled. It is being fulfilled. But there is still a future hope. It will be fulfilled on the last day. And it will be fulfilled not in a, a literal geographic way, as if somehow Jerusalem there in the nation, the political nation of Israel, is to somehow be reinstalled and reinstated. No, the heavenly Jerusalem will come down from heaven, and all the nations, Jews included, will be streaming to it on that final day. So then, how should we live? In light of this prophetic vision, in light of its fulfillment that is already happening, and that will one day happen, how should we then live? Let me give you three responses to that question that we see here from the text. First, live in hope. Live in hope. This vision will surely come to pass. What does the end of verse 4 say? For the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has 
spoken. Yahweh of hosts, that is Yahweh of armies, right? the one true God who has all resources at his disposal, he will bring this reality to pass. His mouth has spoken it. It will happen. And so we must be encouraged, even now as we see the nations coming to Christ in faith, and not just here in America, but around the world, the nations coming to the heavenly Mount Zion to worship him, to learn of him. As we see the nations loving one another, right? the people from the nations coming and, and putting down their, their, their strife and their dissension with, with, with others from other tribes and tongues and, and saying, we may not have everything in common, but we're going to love one another. We are encouraged as we see that happening, but we live in hope because we know that on the last day, the fulfillment of this prophecy will be even more glorious than we could ever imagine. Nothing can stop the kingdom of God from coming. And so we live in hope. But secondly, we live on mission. We live on mission. The word of the Lord must go forth so that the nations will come in. Only God, yes, can create the desire to come to Mount Zion to worship him. Only God can summon and draw the nations to himself. But God uses his church, his people, to go out. We see it even here. Come, come and see, come, let us go to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he might teach us his ways, we might walk in his paths. We are to go out into the highways, into the byways. We are to, to not merely rely on people walking from outside into this building to worship the Lord our God. But we are to go forth and we are to invite them to come in. We are to, 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 to share the gospel with them. We are to evangelize our, our lost friends and neighbors. Who are you praying for to be saved? Who are you speaking to? And having lunch with, or breakfast with, or a conversation over coffee with, who you know they don't know Christ. And you're saying, you're worshiping an idol. You're, you're worshiping a broken cistern that can hold no water. And I want you to worship the fountain of living waters. I want you to know the one true God. I want you to know peace with God through Jesus Christ and through his blood. You see, the word of the gospel, the word of God must be at the center, not only of our church's ministry, but of your personal individual ministry. Everywhere God has you, right? all of your spheres of influence, whether at work or at school or at, in your community, in your activities, God has put you there and he sent you out right, to be a missionary, to be one of these nations who is saying, come, come, let us go. The word of God going forth, again, both, both centrifugal and centripetal. Folks are coming. Yes, people are walking off the streets to hear the gospel and are converted and are saved. Absolutely. But you are called as the people of God to live on mission, to go forth boldly and courageously, bringing the nations to Christ in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. Have you ever thought about that? When you evangelize, you are fulfilling prophecy. You are fulfilling Micah's prophecy, going forth into the world and saying, come, come, come and see. Come and see this Savior whose ways are right and pure and just and good. So we're to live in hope. We're to live on mission. And finally, we are to live to obey our God. Verse 5 seems to be a, a liturgical response 
by the, the, on the part of the remnant of Israel to, to what Micah has said in his prophecy. You notice the first person plural. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we, we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. As it was true for the saints of old in Micah's day, how much more is it true for us? We are waiting for God to fulfill his word once and for all. And so we must walk in a way, in a manner contrary to the ways of the world. Walking in a way that that fits our profession of faith in the one true God and fits our profession of of, of faith in in all that we've seen here in this prophecy. And and think about this, the remnant of verse 5 that said those words first, they hadn't even seen the beginning of the prophecy's fulfillment. They hadn't even seen the destruction of Jerusalem yet. And so certainly they hadn't seen the the rebuilding of of, of the the return from exile that that began all these, these last days works. But we're seeing it fulfilled every day. Right? We are seeing each and every week when we gather for worship, we are seeing the nations coming to Mount Zion. How much more then should we walk in the ways of the Lord our God, loving him, loving our neighbor, living now in light of the future that is to come? We saw that, didn't we, so clearly in 2 Peter chapter 3. And notice the operative word, living together, we, right, we will walk, encouraging one another to live faithfully to God. I close with that great passage from Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And listen to this last phrase in light of what we've just seen from Micah's prophecy, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, right? The vision of the future to come, Micah's vision of this final stage of peace, of prosperity, of the glory of God, the worship of God, the nations coming in, God being exalted over high. As we see that day drawing near, let us encourage one another all the more to hold fast the confession of our hope, to, to, to love, to walk in good deeds. Let us encourage one another to gather together for corporate worship, to be a part of this glorious, universal worship of God that happens each and every Lord's Day and throughout the week in families and individuals. Let us be a part of of the gathering together of the saints that God might be glorified, that we might hear the word of God, go forth into the world and bring that word to the nations that they too might come and taste and see that God is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of coming, of knowing that you alone are God, of knowing that we need the Lord Jesus Christ, of knowing that your ways are higher than our ways and better than our ways. Lord, you have opened our ears and our eyes to learn of you. Lord, would you keep this hope before us as we go forth into the world this week? Would you give us ministry eyes to see, Lord, those who are hurting, those who are without Christ and without hope in this world. Oh Lord, would you help us to be bold, Lord, so that all the nations, the lost that you have chosen from before the foundation of the world would indeed come in. 
Lord, give us, we pray, a glimpse of that last day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.